0: Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply his word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on SouthridgeCC.org. So let's get started.
1: Uh, Samuel Goldman is the one who applies this language the law of conservation of religion. Uh, Maybe you've heard of the law of conservation of matter, the law of conservation of energy. Uh, Those laws state that matter can neither be created or destroyed. Energy cannot be created or destroyed. If matter goes through some kind of chemical reaction, you always end up with the same number of atoms afterwards as before. Uh, Even though they may change states, energy or matter, you still end up with the same amount, but possibly in a different form. Uh, Samuel Goldman applies the law of conservation of matter and energy to religion as well. And he says in his view, society doesn't really become less religious over time, but if, if it appears to become less religious, actually what's simply happening is their, the religious expression is simply changing forms. Uh, people may become less religious, attend church less, they may be, proclaim themselves to be atheists, but the religious impulse and culture is constant and never goes away and may be expressed as something else. Uh, He says, for instance, church membership may decline, but also be accompanied with a rise in political activism. Uh, Sharing our faith or evangelism may decline, but that might look like an increase in environmentalism. It's basically people always need to give themselves to a higher mission, a higher purpose, something grander that they pursue. You know, I think he's got a lot of good points there. My only concern or angle is simply this, that yes, Human beings will always pursue something that's transcendent, that's larger than themselves, but that's not just based on their own human need. That's actually based on the fact that there is something transcendent. There is something beyond us. And so we actually have this thirst to pursue something higher and grander precisely because there is something higher and grander in our world. We're created by the infinite God. We're created to know him. And so as human beings, we have this innate sense of pursuing something that's transcendent, pursuing something that's larger than ourselves, pursuing something that's grander. In John chapter 14, Jesus speaks words to his disciples We're in this series, Jesus Continued, which reminds us that Jesus' work, his presence with us, that is the grander story. That he, Jesus is transcendent. His work in our lives and in this world does continue. Uh, We're going to look at a number of verses that we looked at last week and kind of review some of them. And then we're going to go on as well. And if you tuned into SR Devotions this week, some of what I'm going to share this morning, I shared this week. And, but as I've kind of dug into this, it's just kind of impacted me freshly. And I think many times uh, when we look at John chapter 14 and the verses that we looked at last week, we kind of miss the main focus that Jesus is speaking about. Uh, I'm going to read the verses that we looked at last week and kind of dive into some of themes related to them once again. In John chapter 14, by the way, if you want to t- turn your Bibles, that's page 1675 in the chair in front of you, really highly encourage you to bring your own Bible, bring your little notebook that we're handing out, the message series notes, that jot some things down, make some notes uh, so that you can look at it throughout the week. Here's what Jesus says in John chapter 14. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Often when we read those verses, the primary question that we have or the primary thing that we think about is the where. What's Jesus talking about? Where is he going? Where is he taking us? But the primary thing that Jesus is talking about is the what. We're just gonna look at two basic things this morning. First, we're gonna look at a big what. What is the driving point that Jesus is making? And a driving point that Jesus is making has to do with the presence of God. The big what is the presence of God. He talks with his disciples. He says that in a little bit, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to go to the cross. Eventually, he's going to be raised from the dead and ascend to heaven. His physical presence will not be with them. But he says, my presence will continue. It's Jesus continued. My presence will continue to be with you. And so for a few minutes this morning, we're going to dive into this major theme of the Bible, of God's presence, because that's the what of what Jesus is driving toward in these verses. Just a couple of comments related to that. Often I say here at Southridge that the Bible is not simply a bunch of isolated stories that we draw moralistic lessons from or encouragement from. They're not simply nice, challenging, inspirational stories that help us to live life better. We learn from the mistakes of others. We imitate the victories of others. It's not. It certainly does help us to do that, but that's not primarily what it's about. Instead, the Bible is one large story. Maybe I would put it like this. The Bible is not like a peephole that you look through on your front door to see who's on the other side maybe your doorbell rings, somebody knocks, and you look through the peephole, and you kind of look through that, and it's kind of a distorted picture. But you generally get, if there's somebody out there whose face it is, that kind of thing, you look through a peephole, and your vision is very limited. The Bible is not a peephole through which we look at different events in Scripture. The Bible is a picture window. When you stand in front of a picture window— You see a vast perspective of what's out there. You see the background. You see the foreground. You see everything. The Bible is not a peephole that you look through and simply study the little individual lives and little stories that make us feel good or bad. The Bible is a vast and gigantic picture window through which you see all of reality. And so in John chapter 14, Jesus is actually taking his disciples in front of the picture window. And he's saying, here, look, it all has to do with the what? The what of my presence. My presence will continue with you. Let me just kind of like walk you through the grand story of the Bible because it's all about what? It's all about God's presence with you. Remember in the garden of Eden, God creates Adam and Eve. And he's with them. He fellowships with them. They have a close relationship. Eventually, Adam and Eve choose the path of autonomy. And God says, because you've chosen the path of disobedience, uh, because you've chosen autonomy, because you've chosen to be self providers instead of acknowledging that I provide, you need to be separated. Listen to this, separated from my presence. And so Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, not because God is mean. But simply that's the natural outworking of them saying, hey, we choose to not live in your presence. Like we're our own providers. We're gonna blaze our own trail. And so they are separated from God's presence in the Garden of Eden. God doesn't just like wash his hands and let it all go. His plan is actually to to call to himself a people. And through that people, he said, I'm gonna continue to make my presence known in the world. It won't look like the Garden of Eden, but but I want to choose a people because I'm determined to have my presence continue to be in the world. And so the people of Israel get together and the people of Israel are instructed through Moses, they're to build a tabernacle. And as they travel for like 40 years through a wilderness area, they sent up this tabernacle that's essentially like a roving tent that serves as a place where God's presence dwells. It wasn't like a church like we we are in here. Uh, It wasn't a place where the people necessarily gathered. It was a place where God's presence was among the people. They were no longer in the Garden of Eden, but God says, I want a physical reminder that I am present with you. So build this temple, I'm sorry, build this tabernacle, build this tent, and my presence that's going to symbolize my presence. Interestingly enough, that tabernacle, listen to this, that tabernacle was located right in the center of all of the 12 tribes camped around it. And so there were uh, three tribes on every side, all on each side. The tabernacle was right in the center because God said, I want the building that represents my presence to be right in the center of your encampment. Eventually, that would give way to the temple, the permanent structure. The temple was located in the city of Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel. So, in the capital city of Israel was the temple, and in the temple was this room, just like the tabernacle, called the Holy of Holies. That was the place of God's presence. The crazy thing about it is only one person one day a year would go into the Holy of Holies. It was a place of God's presence. Here's a fascinating thing too. The Holy of Holies in the temple and tabernacle, it was a cube. Same height, width, length. The dimensions were a cube. Symbolized harmony, alignment, intentional design, integration, unity, correspondence. If you have a cube, cubes don't show up accidentally. A cube is only a cube if there's precise measurement, only if it's intentional, only if it's specifically designed that way. And so the holy of holies, the place where God specifically dwelt within the temple and the tabernacle, was actually a cube reminding them God's presence is intentional. It's designed. It's for real. It brings integration and unity around everything. in a cube obviously... Like every side is parallel to every other side. It's integration, it's unity, there's correspondence. Eventually, Jesus is born. And in Matthew chapter one, verse 23, here's what we see: The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him, listen to this, Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God says, okay, The tabernacle and temple were just a representation of where my presence was. Now I'm going to step in to the grand story of the world that I created. And my name is Emmanuel, God with us, God fully present. Fascinating thing we're told as well, that at the very moment that Jesus was crucified, and he was crucified to put on himself our sin, our evil, our darkness. He, was, he, he took on himself the separation of God that characterized humanity in the Garden of Eden. So that separation that Adam and Eve experienced and every one of, ex, of, of us experienced was placed on Jesus at the moment of crucifixion. And here's the deal. At the moment of crucifixion, we're told that the, 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 the curtain that actually shielded the Holy of Holies from the rest of the area was torn in two. In other words, God's presence is now accessible. There's a way of forgiveness. There's a way of, of reconciliation between the God who created humanity that disobeyed him in the Garden of Eden. And now the curtain is torn and now there's access. Now God's presence is, is with us. And then Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. He will cover that in John 14, 15, and 16. Jesus says, I'm ascending to heaven, but I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be my continuing presence in you. In fact, scripture itself says that we are temples, literally roving tabernacles, roving temples. Why? Because God's Holy Spirit dwells in us. His presence is with us. It's all, about the what? it's all about God's presence. How does the scripture end? It ends with John saying in John chapter 21, he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place, listen to this, is now among the people. He will be with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know what's fascinating? We're told elsewhere that the dimensions of the new holy city are a cube. But why why is it a cube? Well, it's a cube because now the holy of holies, the place of God's presence, fills the whole earth the presence of God that existed in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve through Jesus. In the future, John says, the holy city as a cube is gonna descend and God will fully dwell with his people and his people will fully dwell with them. And so the vision that the scripture has is the presence of God Will once again touch down on planet earth. That's the story of scripture, that the holy city will literally be the holy of holies and God's presence will fill all of the earth. And through Jesus, we're able to be participants in that. That's the what that Jesus is driving at. It's bigger than the where. It's bigger than all the details of what that might look like. Jesus is saying, guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. It's all about the what, And my presence will continue to be with you and one day be fulfilled. How does it impact our lives? Well, we already said, and we said last week that Jesus said, don't let your hearts be troubled. I will continue to be present with you. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I am present. But on a daily basis, friends, our lives can be lived in the presence of God. You're designed, your life, you were made to live in the presence of God. You are made to live in the presence of the transcendent and infinite creator. And the message of Jesus is that can happen through him. You know, I've mentioned periodically the classic movie, Chariots of Fire, features Eric Liddell, who was born actually to, in China, but the Scottish parents. And eventually he began to pursue participation in the Olympics. He participated in the 1924 Olympics for Great Britain. And his own sister tried to talk Eric, her brother, out of participating in the Olympics. And she kind of said, hey, I think it's better for you simply to pursue further missionary work in China. Uh, She kind of disagreed with his decision to actually pursue the Olympics and didn't think that running and being competitive would be something that would be honoring or glorifying to God, but that he would be able to serve God much better uh, as a missionary. He eventually did go to China as a missionary. But but Eric's response to his sister was simply this. He said, I believe that God has made me for a purpose, but he has also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. In other words, when I run, I do that in God's presence. When I run, God's presence is with me. When I run, I bring glory to God. When I run, I feel God's pleasure. Contrast that with the story of Harold Abrahamson. Harold competed in the 100 meters, and he was Jewish in ethnicity. And the driving force behind why he ran was simply to prove others wrong and to to establish his own identity. Obviously, combating anti-Semitism was incredibly noble, incredibly needed. And yet, Harold kind of placed all of the weight on his life on proving other people wrong and establishing himself. You can run the 100 meters or athletes can in about 10 seconds. Here's what Harold Abraham said. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. You see the difference there? Eric Liddell says, I know who God is. He's present with me. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Harold Abrahamson, even though a noble cause, he says, I've got 100 meters. And I've got to justify my whole existence in 10 lonely seconds. And if I don't win, my life's a waste. If I succeed, hey, maybe it'll be good. But I've got 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. Listen, friends. In the U.S., we have about a life expectancy of roughly 80 years, a little more, a little less, male, female. Obviously, some live much shorter. Some live longer and all bounces out. The average is around 80 years. If there's no God or you're not living in his presence, you have roughly 80 years to justify your existence. You have roughly 80 years to cram as much pleasure in as you possibly can. You have roughly 80 years to prove that your life matters. You have roughly 80 years to make your mark. You have roughly 80 years to consume and to make sure that you're recognized. You have roughly 80 years to prove that you belong at the top of the pile. You've got 80 lonely years to make sure that you're remembered. You've got 80 lonely years to make sure that your existence is worth a hill of beans. And so you better start running. You better start working hard because you've got 80 lonely years. But if God is present, if God is with us, If Jesus continues, you've got however long to feel God's pleasure. To run and know that when you run, you feel his pleasure. You've got 80 years or whatever you've got, not just to do business and make sure that everybody else knows that you're the smartest and top of the pile and you can complete the deal. You've got whatever time that God gives you to feel his pleasure as he's present with you. You've got whatever time God gives you to teach, to serve in the medical field, to serve the family at home, whatever it is. You've got a certain amount of time. You can either say, It's all I've got, and I've got that amount of time, and I've got to justify my lonely existence. Or you can say, Man, Jesus said he's going to be with us. The story is big. And so, how much ever time God gives you, you've got that amount of time to run and feel his pleasure. What's that gonna be? You know, I encourage you to take some notes in the little message book that we hand out. Maybe one of the conversations you can have, maybe at dinner sometime this week with whoever you have dinner with or a family or kids or whatever. Just spend some what did it look like today to do life in God's presence? What did it look like today to do life, knowing that you do life in the pleasurable presence of God? Here's sort of my prediction if you have children. If you have that conversation with kids, my guess is your kids will say something like, maybe they play soccer or uh, lacrosse or field hockey or something like that, or football. I don't know what they play. But, But my guess is they'll probably say something like this. Yeah, like for me to play soccer in the presence of God, is like means that I keep all of the rules and I don't like push anybody and I don't shove anybody and I play fairly. My guess is that's what they'll say. But you know what, friends? That's actually looking through a peephole. And maybe you can lead them and guide them. Like maybe to do, maybe to play soccer is to have fun in Jesus' name. Maybe it's to play soccer and know that God takes pleasure when you run. Maybe when you play hockey or lacrosse, it's taking pleasure that God has joy in seeing you use your, bo- his, your God-given body. What does Have a conversation about this this week. And my guess is uh, most interaction will be, yeah, to do life in God's presence is to sort of follow the rules, to sort of like make sure you obey. Yeah, it's that, but that's people stuff. The picture window is... When you run, you feel God's pleasure. Have some pleasure in the presence of God this week. Have some pleasure knowing that he delights in you and he delights in what you do. When you run, when you teach, when you cook dinner, when you do laundry, when you go to work, when you drive, when you shop, you feel his pleasure. That's the what of John chapter 14 through 16. Secondly we'll just briefly touch on this. Secondly is not just the way or, or sorry the what but also the way. The what is all about the promise of God's presence. The way is the path who is the person the way is how do you get to the what. Now in the next couple verses are kind of verses that are often kind of challenging on our as they fall on our modern ears. It says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You know, those words often don't fall well on modern ears. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And our natural responses that sound so narrow, that sounds so exclusionary. But let me just kind of like paint a really quick picture for you. I think the New York Yankees are playing at home today. I think they're playing uh, Cleveland Indians, I believe. Um, yeah, somebody said yes over here, so you guys are like tuned into the Yankees. That's cool. Like the Yankees are struggling right now. If I were to go to Yankee Stadium, knock on some doors. I probably I get taken away by security, like. But I said, oh, like no, 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 no. Like I know the way to victory. I know the way to a path to championship. Like I know that. Like, like they said, like who are you? Like, no, you don't. Like, get out of here. You get locked up, can cuffs, that kind of thing. If my name was Harold Steinbrenner, and Harold Steinbrenner is the chairman and managing general partner of Yankee Global Enterprises, which owns the New York, New York Yankees, if I were Hal Steinbrenner and I would say, hey, like I'm the way, like I'm the truth and I'm the life, to the Yankees getting a championship, uh, doors would open, right? I mean, they would. Why? Be- because he owns the organization. Listen, friends, the reason we kind of say like, "Ah, oh, the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except like, Like, what's Jesus, like, why does he get away with saying, well, I would ask that too, absent the story of Scripture. But if Jesus is creator, if Jesus is the way that we have presence with God, well, then kind of makes sense if he says that because he has a right to say it because he is the creator. He's the one who descended to earth he is the one who is God with us. It makes sense for him. to. uh, Maybe I would say this. Hey, probably anybody could be the way if life was kind of generic. If you put a compost pile in the corner of your yard and, you know, put your garbage in there and like give it a few million years start, if you kind of add some organic material there. Um, If in like, 30 million billion years, like another little planet comes out of that compost pile that you put, and there's all these little beings scurrying around on it. And some guy says, hey, I'm the way, the truth, and like I said, yeah, like this came from a compost pile. Anybody can be the way, the truth, and the life, right? Like really? But that's not what we have on planet Earth. Listen to this. If we live in an unordered, purposeless, storyless, meaningless, aimless, directionless, fuzzy, hazy, cloudy, random, pointless, floundering, drifting, accidental world, probably anybody can be the way, right? If we live in a pointless, meaningless, aimless, directionless, cloudy, random, pointless, floundering, drifting, accidental world, I don't know, probably anybody is the way but we don't live in that kind of world. We live in a world that's purposeful. That's here by the act of a creator God. And Jesus, the creator, steps to earth and says, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm the way to the grand what? And the grand what? is the presence of God. Now, quite honestly, as somebody else said, I think as followers of Jesus, we're probably better on Jesus being the way and truth, and we're not so good at him being the life. We're pretty good at Jesus being, quote, like the way to heaven. But I think we probably need to grow in Jesus being the life that when I run, I feel his pleasure. See, that's Jesus, the life. And if he's creator, if he's the presence of God, come to earth. And he says in a few hours, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be crucified. And I'm going to take on myself the separation that exists between humanity and God. Then, yeah, I'm going to kind of go with Jesus. That He's the way, the truth, and the life because we don't live in this purposeless, accidental, random, crazy world. We live in this place. We're created by God, and we're loved by him. And he comes here himself, and he says, I am the way back to the Father's presence. I'm going to ask our team to come out, and we're going to close with a song, and it's a song actually that Paul and several team members kind of wrote and put together. So just going to encourage you to let this song watch over you. Jesus goes on. Let me just read a couple of these words. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? That the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus says, Guys, live deeply in my presence. Live deeply in my presence. Feel my pleasure when I run. When you run, feel his pleasure. And it comes through Jesus, who is God's presence on earth and through whom we're welcomed in to the Father's presence. Let the song wash over you. Um, yeah, live deeply in the Father's presence during these moments and take this with you.
0: Pursues me, your love pursues me, A gentle voice calling me back.
1: thank you for your presence. We belong in your presence. Thank you that through Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that we can be present with you now and for all eternity. May each of us embrace and receive that gift may we ask Jesus to be our savior who provides presence everlasting with the father may we feel your pleasure through your presence We ask that in the name of Jesus, amen. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, Thanks for being at Southridge in this week. When you run, may you feel God's pleasure.